Hello, is this thing on? Do you think they can hear us? Nah, let's say it again. Hi, and welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. My name is Amy. And my name is Sarah. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Amazon, or any other podcast listening platform, don't forget to subscribe so you can get updates to when we have our latest episodes. Also, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you like what you're hearing and you love our advocacy work, don't forget to go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the donate button. As little as $1 or $2 a month for a total of $12 a year will help us with our monthly podcast costs such as website hosting, our hosting platform, audio equipment, and the time and energy it takes us to put out good quality episodes. We thank you and we appreciate you. The pandemic has opened nurses' eyes to seek out new careers in nursing. We always get more questions about what other opportunities there are in nursing other than working at the bedside. Both of us have our master's degrees and it has afforded us career advancement, flexibility of schedules, and work-life balance. Going back to school is always an option. And Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. They're consistently ranked top in the U.S. for diversity and highest paid graduates. In order to help nurses advance their education during these crazy times, they are offering over a dozen different types of easily obtainable scholarships, starting at $10,000 for any nurse who enrolls in the spring 2022 semester in either their online MSN FMP or DNP FMP programs. So visit them at smumsn.com. Again, that is smumsn.com. Hi and welcome everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. I think we're going to have a really great episode and you know what this has actually been something we've been thinking about for the past couple weeks and you know I have a cousin who is in virtual nursing school and he tells me some of the challenges that he's been facing but now we actually have someone who could really talk that's kind of from the top about you know some of the challenges some of the pros and cons of you know virtual nursing school. So before I say anything else let Sarah take it away. Dr. Michael McGillian is an assistant professor and assistant dean of research in the School of Nursing at McMaster University. He obtained a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from McMaster in 1996 and a PhD in Nursing Science from the University of Toronto in 2006. Michael has practiced as a nurse in general medicine and emergency care in both Canada and United States. He is a McMaster University Scholar and holds the Heart and Stroke Foundation, Michael G. DeGroote Endowed Chair of Cardiovascular Nursing at McMaster. He is also a scientist at the Population Health Research Institute in Hamilton, Ontario. His research program focuses on technology-enabled remote automated patient monitoring and the virtual care of people recovering from cardiac, vascular, and other forms of surgery. We are so glad to have you here today, Michael. Welcome to the Greedy Nurse Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was wondering if you could maybe start by telling us a little bit more about your role and how you uh, got involved in that. So I've had a real pleasure of being involved in research for some time now. It's always been an aspiration of mine to, you know, as a nurse scientist, to really think about, you know, 
what is the impact that nurses make and how can we study that systematically along with colleagues, particularly in the way we are organized in health systems. And this really led to my interest in virtual care and how can we optimize the role and impact of nurses uh, with virtual care technologies. So, you know, I've seen it as a real opportunity to move forward and advance and put a focus on what our profession can contribute uh, in terms of patient outcomes. Yeah, that sounds actually really interesting. And I mean, in light of the pandemic, what have you seen in terms of some of the pros and cons and struggles to this whole model of virtual care? I think when I think about um, virtual care from a hospital setting, there we definitely had some some challenges and struggles. So, what were what's some of your experiences with that at this point? Yeah, it, it's a great question and a really timely one. So, I'll just back up for a minute. So, I think probably with along with my group at the Population Health Research Institute and the School of Nursing, we really crystallized focus and intensive focus on virtual care research in around 2016 and really started thinking about with surgical patients, how can we operationalize care virtually to address some of the care transitions? And we'll get into that as we talk about the conversation, what are the important gaps we address? But in terms of the pandemic, you know, we started as I th- what I think outside of the chronic care and wellness management systems, like in terms of acute hospital care transition to home as early adopters. And then the pandemic hit. And it was really taking us to the next level in terms of challenging us to accelerate, you know, the models we were developing, you know, the whole world has had to extemporize to think about how can we, how can we care for patients virtually to promote physical distancing and also to reduce strain on hospitals. And so in terms of our research program as a collective, it really was an accelerator for us because here we were working in how to advance virtual care and then called upon to help make contributions uh, in terms of reducing health system burden and promoting social distancing after surgical recovery for patients. So I think it's been, um, you know, the world of healthcare is not going to be the same. Uh, you know, it's really virtual care is, is now mainstay and is, you know, creating solutions, but also creating problems that we need to solve and how to do it well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can t- definitely empathize with that because um, in my organization, we're really pushing virtual care. And I think that some of the challenges we've come across is just that the patients that we work with, they don't um, have the technology or they don't feel comfortable with this type of care. So have, have you come across yeah. any of that? And it's another great question. And often a first one that I mean, I'm uh, met with, with new groups who are interested in how to launch virtual care programs. I, what first comes up is what about people's discomfort, you know, not only patients and families, but also clinicians in the home. And so just maybe I could give a, a contextualized example. Uh, and then, you know, from which general messaging can be uh, thought about, but when we think about patients recovering from surgery, so we really made our start with patients recovering from cardiac surgery, right? So we really wanted to think about how can we help people in the transition home after these major operations? And so we know in terms of surgical care that the emphasis is in hospital care and patients go home and they are they can be alone. They can be with loved ones, you know, family caregivers, maybe some professional caregivers in the community. 
but really the follow-up care is um, there's often a time gap where people are followed by their surgeon or their family physician or nurse practitioner, but that initial period where people are home and vulnerable is a real gap. And so we wanted to start, so back in 2016, we applied for an opportunity called the Canadian Institute, Institutes of Health Research eHealth Innovation Partnership Program. And it was really to address these very issues, uh, Sarah, that you're talking about, which is how can we advance the use of virtual care technologies, particularly in seniors who may be uncomfortable with such such technologies. And so the, the opportunity, we were successful, which is fortunate for the group, but it really helped us think through, how do we do this? How do we, because technology are tools, right? And we all have things, you know, I work in virtual care, but you know, I'd like, you know, how do I do this on my iPhone or, you know, logging into something, you know, we all encounter challenges with technology. And so I think it's to really turn that around and think about people. And so one of the things that we started with that we've kept as a core principle in advancing uh, the work and the nursing role in virtual care is starting with the patient and the family and talking to them. So we, what we did is we mapped out with patients who had, you know, complications after surgery that potentially could have been avoided. What happened to you after your surgery? Where were the gaps? When did you need to talk somebody to talk to somebody and you couldn't get hold of anyone? at home, you know, what were your, what was it like for you? And so we really mapped out with seniors what happened to them and asked them, what do they need? If they had another loved one who was having a similar operation like them, what would have been helpful? And we didn't ask them to give us recommendations on specifics around particular technologies, but just, you know, in terms of your life, what, what would you have needed in terms of support? And then it's really our job as innovators and nurses to think about what tools can we bring to, to bring that to life for people and facilitate support. And so I think one of the ways to get around the discomfort is to not think about the technology itself, is to focus on people and process. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, when when nurses, and I shouldn't just say nurses, but like when healthcare providers, and not all, think about technology, and I think Sarah can agree to this, we get the we start getting the cringe factor. <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily, you know, um, nurses of our age. I shouldn't say that, but like, you know, we are of the, I guess, the millennial group, right? We're technology savvy. We're 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 on <laughs> yes. Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. We're using all these various modalities. But for some nurses, it can be really, really. Like you said, you know, try not to focus on the technology and focus on the individual. But again, you know, how do you think that this virtual learning or virtual care and the research has actually affected the delivery of care for, for nurses working for, for patients that, yeah. that, you know, intersection, because I feel that, you know, especially that you were working with seniors, I think that that could be quite daunting. So how did you kind of overcome some of those things? And like, what was, what tips and tricks would you have for nurses who feel really daunted by this aspect of virtual care? Cause I, I could tell you some, some of my colleagues are like, you know, this is not the way we should be doing things. Why did we change it? We're, we're going to miss out on, on, on that, that um, nursing care aspect. What, what do you have to say to them? Sure thing. So uh, these are great questions. And first I want to just present a caveat. I, I'm deeply envious of the millennial savviness with technology and somebody who works in and is, you know, perceived as uh, a leader in virtual care. It's, 
you know, it's not easy. I'll, I'll say that. So there, there's things you have to think about, but a, a broader approach to start, I think is as, you know, a nursing practice is to think about what impact can we as nurses have on patients and families, whether it be on the surgical ward or supporting people recovering at home. Now I'm focusing on surgery because that's my field, but I think the, the general message can apply. And it's to think about really technology as tools and not to be intimidated by technology. We all have to learn it, of course. But there's a couple important things, and maybe I could make a simple example. On surgical wards, a question we have to ask ourselves is, why is it that nurses spend a great deal of their time as, an, as, a, you know, as a valuable resource in healthcare, rolling around vital signs monitors and taking vital signs of patients manually. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we have to think about is as critical thinkers who can care for people and respond to patient instability or prevent it in the first place, much of our time is involved in manual workflows where as technology progresses, some of these aspects can be automated to free nurses up to focus on where real impact is, which is around patient care. And I just wanted to give you an example. So a colleague of, of ours, um, Dan Sessler at Cleveland Clinic, his group, uh, in one of the early studies collaborating with our center, um, they followed uh, quite a number of patients, over 500 where patients were recovering from surgery and applied to them was a pulse oximeter, right? So looking at their blood oxygen saturation level and nurses were blinded to that and the patient was blinded. So the machine was just taking it continuously. Nobody could see Mm -hmm. it. At the same time, nurses just engaged in their regular workflow where they took the patient's vital signs every four, six or 12 hours, whatever the protocol was in the ward. So what happened? Well, Nurses were able to detect a 5% incidence where people were hypoxic on the ward, where blood oxygen saturation was not high enough to be safe. What did the machines uncover? Well, that the true incidence of people having, you know, a blood oxygen saturation of less than 90 was just under 40%. And so what it tells us is that we can position technology to be a facilitative aid in processes of care where the machines can pick up things that inform nursing practice instead of us relying on manual antiquated workflows where we're focused on busy work and missing important indicators because it's impossible as humans to say, okay, we're going to be at the bedside right when the patient might potentially be deteriorating. When you have five to eight patients on a surgical ward, it's not possible. Mm right? Nor should it be an expectation that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the thought exercise here is to think about how can we position technology as a tool and not something that facilitates our value as nurses, what we bring to the table in terms of critical care and thinking. And so understanding that there is some learning always about how to use technology well, but technology is never a replacement for the critical thought work that nurses bring to the table. It's how does it help us uh, to be efficient and to really, you know, use it as a facilitative tool to maximize our impact on patients. So I think that's one general way to think about when technology feels intimidating is that we have to understand, you know, even the work of, you know, people like Margaret Sandalowski for years have talked about technology as a tool that facilitates care. It's not an entity of in itself 
that we should be afraid of rather than how can we think about the intelligent use of technologies to help our practice. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I think it's about changing our mindset where we don't have to feel threatened by technology. I could see some nurses thinking like, oh, if I don't take this blood pressure anymore, am I going to lose this skill? Like this machine is now somehow threatening my skill set when really we should be thinking about how it can help our workflow. And I'm just thinking back to my practice when I was a nurse and there was, I think, two portable blood pressure and you know you'd spend all your time looking for it and we even named them like they had names because it's like oh where's where's Benjamin and we knew that meant like one of the blood pressure cuff machines and just things like oh we couldn't find the right size cuff and then now these days thinking about infection control like I think these are things that we perceive as part of our daily work when we could be making it much easier and freeing up our time to assess patients in different ways in more in more detail. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's a great way to phrase it, you know, to think about technology can feel threatening, but it, you know, we have an opportunity for great leadership in how technology is positioned to optimize the va- the impact and the value we bring to the table as critical thinkers at the bedside and elsewhere as nurses. And so I think that's the, that's the, that's the thought work. And it's an important part of educating people in virtual and technology-based care is to understand technology as a tool. You had a practical question around just how do you get people comfortable with the tools once you kind of establish that rapport with technology as something that can facilitate practice. And so one of the ways that we've done this is I think it's important to be thoughtful that people do need a little bit of a runway, right? You can't just say, okay, we're, we're going to use this this tech and everybody go. We know that that leads to implementation failure, frustration. It can be demoralizing for people if they feel they haven't had adequate time to catch up. But there's ways to be creative about how you do it. So in this trial I was telling you about called SmartView with with seniors and technology recovering from cardiac surgery, what we did is we, we said, okay, well, let's rehearse. And so we had monitoring technology that we applied to the patients that could monitor them continually rather than manual vital signs on the ward. And then from hospital to home, patients went home with a tablet and blood uh, vital signs equipment provided with us uh, to us by Philips. And so what happened was we worked with the nurses to give them a risk-free scenario to learn the technology, give them the in-service on how to use it, and then simulate allowing them to get comfortable, simulating patient deterioration and how would they respond and interact with the technology and the patient at the same time. And so, you know, we did that while still providing the the day-to-day distractions and the multiple things nurses have to deal with simultaneously to give them a chance to be able to think aloud and give us feedback on, you know, as a nurse, this needs to be a tool for me. So you need to hear feedback about how I think this could be implemented so that it facilitates my practice rather than interferes with it. And we did the same for nurses who were trained to follow the patients virtually, but also patients and families. You know, rehearsal of the skills required in a risk-free setting takes a little bit of creative thought work, but it gives people an opportunity to feel enfranchised in the process where they are part of the co-creation and the design of virtual care pathways with you. So rather than it being imposed on them, nurses, patients, and families felt very much part of the leadership in thinking through how do we do this. 
Well, that's kind of like 100% the way to go about change anyways. Like, I mean, um, it sounds like it wasn't a top-down approach. And I think that's ha- that that really shows, you know, um, that you, you want those people to be a part of the process. And it's actually hugely important to involve patients and families in the process. Like, I mean, I guess I, I I'm putting on my accreditation hat, but it, it is, it is kind of the way of the future in terms of if, you, if you're going to make a change that you make sure that you incorporate patients and families. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is it actually kind of brings me back to my master's <laughs> my master's uh, degree, where I was actually learning about something, and I'm sure you, you've heard this term uh, before, the technicity in nursing or the technicity of nursing. Mm. So um, for those that are listening, I'll just quickly do a quick um, blurb about what the technicity means. So the term technicity refers to the tension created by the ability of humans to think versus their risk of being exploited as objects subservient to technologies. Drawing upon philosophical works of Thoreau, and I'm going to say this this name wrong, Hedeger and others, the author's tend to pause on the conundrum created by expanding technology with the assumption that technological improvements should be evaluated with caution. So my, the first thing I think about is kind of Sarah and my background, which is uh, labor and delivery. And I don't know if you have any um, thoughts and education pertaining to something called the fetal health surveillance monitor. So with that piece of technology. Don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you all about it. So this piece of technology, again, is a tool and it's we consider it a screening tool. And how this tool is supposed to be used is, you know, you, you'll see um, fetal heart rates or whatnot, and you'll make an assumption and a judgment based on what you see. But what happens is this thing called the normalization of the deviant. So we rely so heavily on this technology that we, we no longer are looking at the patients. How do we prevent that from happening? How do we prevent this great piece of technology, this tool that we have, especially in the OR set setting where, you know, it's going to be important to see what, what's actually happening with that patient post-operatively by actually looking at them. How do we avoid that situation where we might see that normalization of the deviance? Without the clinical experience and expertise that you have in uh, maternal and uh, health, you know, I, I think what you speak to is this understanding that, um, or, you know, a, a general expression we've all heard in practice is, you know, nurse the patient, not the monitor, right? And so it's really about, I think, you know, nurses are embedded in systems, right? So it, depending on your the nature of your practice, of course, but, you know, to, to speak about hospital care for a moment, we, we work in systems. And so is really to think first and foremost, what is our position in the system? What is our responsibility? And you know, what is it we need to do as nurses? So forget the technology. What's our, what's our role in the care of these patients, right? It is to assess, it is to you know, monitor, intervene within our scope of practice, work with other colleagues to facilitate health. So I think we can't forget that. First and foremost is what is the value that we bring to the table and know our worth? And so there's no technology that can replace it. There are things, of course, that we have to do. We have to be able to digest the information the technology is giving us, right? And this is where I think people need time to develop that balance where they become comfortable with, with technology, but they also develop their critical thinking skills over time as they advance their career. And so the more exposure you have as an expert clinician, nurse, the more 
the more you know discretion you bring to the table in terms of interpreting what is what is technology telling me versus what I understand is happening with the patient at the time. And so I think the anxiety, I think, you know, the work is really around managing that tension where your practice, you are driving your practice and you are judicious about, you know, what is technology being used for? What is it telling me uh, and where I am? And when you're less seasoned and particularly, you know, when you're a new nurse, it's conferring with colleagues to really understand, you know, let me run by you my critical thinking here. Here's what I'm seeing in the monitor, but here's what I think's going on with the patient. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's to um, really, really think about technology as a tool to practice. And I know I keep saying it, but I think it really needs to be rule number one is that, you know, there are technologies that we must use in, in, in clinical care to understand what's going on in terms of a patient's physiology or other other inputs where we upon which we have to make decisions, but to take pause and really think about how we can season our own clinical reasoning by using the information sources technology give us rather than thinking about technology as doing the thinking for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, again, so early education is around giving people the time and space to be able to get comfortable clinically and think about how technologies are applied to clinical scenarios. Absolutely. I'm thinking back to my days as a neonatal intensive care unit nurse. So when I was a NICU nurse, all of our babies were hooked up to monitors, right? So oxygen saturation, um, respirations, their um, CO2 levels. And a lot of times because these babies would move, right, the probes would fall off. And I remember my preceptor saying like, Okay, so the probe has fallen off and it's reading right now like the oxygen is 80%, let's say. So it's obviously lower than normal. But look at the baby. Like, what is this baby doing right now? Does it look pink? Yes. Is it holding its breath? Because sometimes babies, you know, they'd be trying to have a bowel movement. They'd be holding their breath. And that's the reason, right? So again, the technology is a tool, but it doesn't replace your clinical knowledge as a nurse. So I kind of think back to that as well as it's it's really just a tool. And sometimes we had to explain a lot to the parents too, like look at the baby, don't look at the monitor because they were so conditioned to the alarms, it would cause a lot of anxiety in them, right? But we'd be saying like, look, the probe fell off. So let's get the probe back on or let's change it to a better angle or whatever. I guess this is just all to say that, you know, technology is here to stay. I don't think it's going anywhere. And, you know, the more that we can accept it, I think the easier time we'll have. I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about your thoughts on the future of healthcare and if you think we need to worry about technology or even AI in general. Opinions will differ for sure. My view, we need to embrace it and think about how technology and the exciting developments in things like machine learning can really help us and accelerate our practice. So maybe I could give you an example, if that's okay, of a recent study. So uh, the timing of our conversation is good. This uh, this study by our group. So I had the pleasure of leading a trial uh, along with my colleague PJ Devereaux, who's the division or direct uh, director of our division of perioperative care, and I'm um, one of the nursing leaders in that group. And so this trial is now available in the British Medical Journal, but it was really about going back to the pandemic and the work we were doing with surgical patients, we were asked at the Hamilton Health Sciences, you know, how can we use the model you're building to facilitate covering to home 
help prevent people from being readmitted and help reduce strain on the system and the burden. And so, you know, it was an opportunity to think about how could we put together a group of nurses who would help care for patients virtually after surgery. And so we did this experiment in uh, 904 patients, 905 patients, excuse me, across eight hospital centers in Canada uh, in a span of a few months. And so what we did was patients who had recovered from emergency, urgent, and semi-urgent surgery, you know, big operations, things that they were happening to them, and we needed to support them at home. We worked with a company called CloudDX, and we sent patients and family home with a tablet, vital signs equipment so they could take their blood pressure, respiratory rate, heart rate, um, their weight daily for us in the morning. And so we set up a system where um, nurses use the connected health kit technology uh, with patients and families uh, to assess patients for the first 30 days at home, because we know that's a period of risk for people where they're vulnerable at home. And so nurses were able to do these assessments via video visit, look at trends in patients' vital signs. So we had set predetermined thresholds with our physician colleagues around safety. You know, what parameters could be telling nurses that, you know, there's, we need to investigate further. And so nurses did these assessments. They also looked for things that we know can be problematic, like a medication reconciliation review every seven days. And so um, to detect and then correct medication errors that can really throw patients off track in their recovery. Also pain. They looked at pain carefully. Are you on track with your pain control? Do we need to optimize it? Because these are things that drive people going back to hospital. And so what we found in the trial is that when we focus on people and process and think about technology as a tool, we're able to get people comfortable in the home using technology. And there's things you can do to set it up, right? So you can use a cellular enabled tablet. So it doesn't impose on patients and family in terms of having to have Wi-Fi infrastructure, right? It helps with the equity of who's being included in trials where, you know, now it depends on your country. Canada has some network infrastructure issues around cellular connection. So, you know, we did have to have people where they were in range of a cellular tower, but it didn't require them to have a home set up per se. And so, you know, patients and family, like people, older people got very comfortable very quickly using this tech and connecting with nurses and talking about their recovery and thinking through critically the issues. And what did we find when we focus on people in process? We were able to make meaningful reductions in acute hospital care, meaning the ability, like the, whether or not people needed to return to the emergency room, be readmitted and so on, particularly in centers where this was, um, the protocol was adhered to. So we really set out the decisions we made ahead of time. We would respond to parameters where patients' vital signs were out of range. We would follow the protocol and then our nurses would bring concerns forward, intervene in their own scope of practice, but then escalate to our physician colleagues to work together to solve problems. And we found that when we really optimize process and focus on people and process, we can make significant reductions um, in hospital readmission, emergency department visits, and urgent care center visits. And so I think the future is thinking about the nurse's frontline role in the delivery of care and how to think about how we can design care well that keeps people central and 
puts technology in a position to facilitate optimizing our scope of practice. I think that's the key. With respect to machine learning, we have a study upcoming that's been supported by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. We're going to use more advanced monitoring technology by CloudGX that collects multiple vital signs simultaneously. And we're going to follow 20,000 patients after surgery internationally and develop predictive algorithms that can help us think, forewarn us early about major complications that can happen, such as major bleeding, sepsis, surgical site infection, and so on. And so we have to think of these things as exciting opportunities to optimize what we can do in terms of impact on healthcare. And so that means being open to being educated and understanding how we can use technologies best. No, I, I I agree, and I think those are those are perfect examples of those studies. And myself and Sarah will definitely get them, so we can actually add them to our our, our um, description at the end. But I I wanted to kind of capitalize on on something that you mentioned about um, equity and inclusion, and this this is going to be a difficult question. Um, so with technology, how do we make sure that it's inclusive? What about those who are precariously housed? And, you know, let's say they do have to have a surgery. How do we make sure that we're including those people or, you know, people who, who are put at a disadvantage? Did the, did the studies and the things that you worked on um, mm-hmm. look at and have a very inclusive sample? So that's one of the things that Sarah and I do concern ourselves about when, when it comes to technology. We've had some re- really great speakers on. So we've had uh, Dr. Nahid Dasani and, and it was actually one of our podcasts where we were talking about homelessness. Like how do we make sure that care is going to be delivered equitably? And when we think about technology, that was one of the most challenging things that we, that we struggled with. So um, what would you have to say in terms of how do we, how do we make sure that this work that McMaster yourself and other people using technology is equitable? Yeah, I mean, these are such critical, important issues. And I think that, you know, there are many questions more than answers at the moment. And this is why it's so important. And that's how we learn. And I think that when we think about technology, we have to back up and remember, number one, it's a tool. And there are a set of tools, but it's around design. You know, how can we implement technology to facilitate care of individuals wherever they may be. And so this, this is, this is where we have to think about research and design and, you know, the interface of nursing research and practice, but also policy and how do we help influence policy things like network cellular infrastructure, right? And so uh, with, with things changing globally, like 5g in terms of network connectivity, you know, it, it opens up a lot of possibilities where, you know, in countries that have less developed infrastructure, there's more communication capacity, things that we can think through. But again, it's thinking about the people first. And so, for example, if you design a system that's reliant that people have a home Wi-Fi set up, I think that you are automatically ruling out a whole bunch of people. And so it's how, as the technologies become more sophisticated, how can we learn to use them in ways that help people, help us help people through things like cellular-based connection that doesn't require a payment model for patients? I mean, somebody has to pay for it. So that's another issue is health systems implementation and who pays for these things. But 
the less we can impose on terms of home-based requirements for people or community-based requirements for people who don't have a permanent home of their own and who move around. And certainly, you know, in some of the studies we've done to date, we've had people involved who, you know, home can be called a number of locations. And so it's about how do we have foresight into thinking this technology is going to be with you while you're recovering and let's work together on how we're going to get the technology back to us at the end. How can we, how can we work with you on that to solve that problem? You know, how will we care for you wherever you are? And so these things are all tied to the technology development and acceleration pathway too, right? So if you think about how technologies evolve, then in terms of economics, you know, there's an interface between innovation and manufacturing. And so as, as technologies become streamlined and manufacturing becomes, you know, more efficient in terms of cost, you have to think about, you know, what is the design of the tech that can fit on a patient in terms of monitors, for example, how do you design that hardware for mass manufacturing that's cheaper, right? If you think of early computers, the size of a room, right mm-hmm. now, like we have more computing power on our phone now than, than early rockets to outer space. Yeah. And so, you know, when you think of the, the, the amount of people in the world who have access to mobile phone technology. And so there is room for evolution in terms of spread and access to technologies. And I think the way that we can help it is through some design thinking about what is it we need to achieve in our practice to help people and how can we facilitate process uh, where we keep barriers to a minimum? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think, I, I, I do think it'll be hugely important to make sure that, like you said, we meet people where they're at and that, you know, maybe even on a going for, forward basis that when we're thinking about these technologies, that, you know, the people that we do include might be those people that we would consider to be marginalized or at the fringes and make sure that, you know, they are a part of that, that work to say like, you know, this workflow works, but what about this workflow and having them to have a, a seat at the table or, 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 you know, ha- actually hearing their voice and their perspective. I think this has been really insightful. It's gotten me to think about technology in uh, a much different way than I've thought about it in the past. And I think it just opens up a lot of possibilities for us as clinicians and for patients, right? Like I recently met someone who was 92, who has internet, actually saw that she has a Twitter account. I was very impressed. So I think we shouldn't discount people based on age or what we think they can or can't do. Um, But I just wanted to ask you a sort of a, a different question. It's more around the image of nursing. So we've talked a lot about um, some incorrect stereotypes about what nurses are and what they can do. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit more about what a nurse scientist is, because I don't think a lot of our listeners have considered this before or necessarily know what it is that that you do or others do. Sure. Well, thank you for the question. So, I mean, I'll as a nurse scientist, what do I do? I ask questions. And so... Uh, you know, in terms of my educational preparation, I have a, uh, I don't have a master's degree, but I have a PhD in nursing science from the University of Toronto. And what did that training offer me? It offered me the opportunity to think about, you know, how can I help to advance care thinking about practice? And so, you know, my area of interest has always been around uh, patient outcomes and their interact and the interaction of outcomes, health systems and design. And so scientific training is all about thinking about, you know, questions you want, what are the problems you want to solve first, right? 
that to require dedicated focus. So something like in my own case with my group, you know, optimizing recovery from surgery and promoting safety and keeping adverse events as low as we can. And so you've got to, you've got to think about what are the problems? What are the challenges before us as nurses? What problems do we want to solve? And then, you know, what are the questions we need to ask if we're thinking about potential solutions and what is it we need to evaluate? And so as a nurse scientist, these are the things that, you know, myself and other nurse scientists think about, but you can't do that in isolation. It really requires a, a group and it requires nursing engagement of nurses at all levels, bedside, leadership, policy, in all of our studies, all of those roles are involved because to understand phenomena well, you've got to talk to people who are at all those different uh, stages of, you know, health care. And so, you know, we talk to the bedside nurses in detail. They are part of our team, right? They become trained in virtual care, work with us. The nursing leadership helps us think about roles, how we can evolve this. Um, you know, the patients and family work with the nurses and work with us to think through workflow. And so it's really about thinking about how to facilitate groups of people and nurses at all levels to come to the table with our health professional colleagues and other professions to solve problems. Amazing. That is a great answer. I think that will actually help a lot of nurses listening, figuring out what they want to do with their careers, especially those that are a bit newer to nursing. So, um, Michael, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Um, if you have any social media handles or links, we will definitely include them in our show notes so anyone listening can um, dig a bit deeper into all the great work that you've done. And um, just wanted to thank you again for coming on, and we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It's been a, a real pleasure, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you both. Congratulations on your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs>